If I were to ask you about the significance of Pentecost, uh, most Christians would reply that it marks the beginning of the New Testament church, and you would be right in saying that. But it's much more than that. It's a day of change that includes reversals, fulfilled prophecy, and promises kept. So that's what I want to look at today as we talk about the day of Pentecost. Uh, let's look at what Pentecost brought in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. The disciples, don't forget, Jesus had just recently ascended back up into heaven. And he told them to remain in the area in Jerusalem here. And as they gathered together, verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Could have been the same house where Jesus held the Last Supper. We don't know. But they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, imagine the sound of a tornado as we would think today. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? So one of the first things I want to talk about is a great reversal, a great reversal. Because this miracle that God provided through the Holy Spirit, Galileans speaking the gospel, and people from all over the world who didn't speak that language, hearing the message in their own tongues. Not only in their own languages, but in their own dialects. So if it was a southerner from the United States, he would hear it in a southern accent. If it was a northerner, he'd hear it in a northern accent. God was very precise in this miracle. But it's a great reversal. I'll ask you to turn back to Genesis chapter 11. There was another thing that happened here with regard to languages that was just the opposite. It had to do with the story of the Tower of Babel. Now we know in these ancient times here, it says in verse one of Genesis 11, now the whole world had one language back in those days and a common speech. 
As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and, and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, it had been God's purpose that they be scattered over the whole earth. So this was, in a sense, disobeying God. Remember, it was God who said to Adam and Eve, multiply and fill the whole earth. It was God's purpose for the human race to spread over all the territory that he had created on this earth. But what happened here in this early civilization these individuals said, we don't want to be scattered. We don't want to spread around the whole earth. We want to stay together because we can accomplish more. And this whole concept of building a tower that reaches to heaven seemed to be a, a statement to God, you know, in your face, God. You know, we're going to build a, 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 an edifice here that's going to reach up to heaven and we're going to be just like God somehow. We don't want to be told what to do. It's not going to be according to God's plan. It's going, going to be according to our plan. It's about ourselves. It's about making a name for ourselves. You see that? But verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their languages so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is, that is why it is called Babel. You know, if somebody's speaking gibberish today, you say, well, he's babbling. <laughs> I don't even understand what he's saying. So that's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Amen. So that's what God's plan was. Mankind, don't forget last week we talked about Satan, rebelling and in influencing perhaps a third of the angels to rebel against God with him. You see the same thing happening here. So who do you think motivated this whole Babel thing and the building the tower and rebelling against God? Well, obviously Satan did. So he was very quick in involving himself in trying to get mankind to act the same way that he did and the fallen angels did. So God split up their languages. They had to separate so they would listen to who was speaking something that they could understand. And, oh, I understand him. I'll go with him. So that group went that way. That group went that way. And they scattered over the whole earth. Now, on Pentecost, the reversal takes place, doesn't it? you got people from different nations speaking different languages, and on Pentecost, God enabled all these foreigners from many different nations to hear the gospel in their own language. Instead of splitting up the languages, God, in a sense, brought them all back together again for God's purpose, not mankind's purpose, to rebel against God and to make a name for themselves. This, on Pentecost, is for God's purpose. This is the beginning of the church. This is the beginning of the preaching of the gospel to the world as a whole. So it's a great reversal. 
The great reversal isn't that we all have one language again, but we have one gospel for all people and for all languages. It's what brings us back together, this time, though, under God's plan and not our own. That's why the scripture says in Ephesians, there is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. So you see, when it's God's plan for God's purpose, he has the ability to undo what was done in, in Babel. He brought everybody back together again for the purpose of hearing the gospel. So that was a one-time shot. You know, you don't see uh, pastors speaking in a particular language and others hearing it in uh, other languages. But, you know, I'm sure it has happened over time. And God can do that anytime he wants to. And perhaps he's given missionaries at certain times that ability to do that and that gift. But it's the great reversal. God reversed things for the purpose of the gospel. So not only is Pentecost the great reversal, it is also fulfilled prophecy. Now, back here to Acts chapter 2, in verse 14, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men, the disciples who are preaching the gospel, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel here. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So when you read that prophecy in the book of Joel, what does that apply to? Well, Peter tells us it applies to the day of Pentecost. That's when it was fulfilled. So when you're dealing with prophecy in the Bible, if perchance at times the Bible interprets prophecy, that's the best source of knowledge on that prophecy as to the interpretation of it. Amen. So notice the prophecy starts off by saying in the last days God will do this and it was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost so the the phrase the last days you know people ask me from time to time you know pastor do you think we're living in the last days and I say yes of course because I know that the last days began <laughs> on the day of Pentecost the prophecy said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. And that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So, you see, prior to Jesus coming to earth, that whole era prior to that was one particular age. But when Jesus was incarnated, when he lived on earth and had his earthly ministry, then ascend, he, of course, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended back up to heaven, and then the coming of the Holy Spirit, 
This all ushers in the last days. It's a completely new age. It's a day of salvation. It's a day of the Holy Spirit, an age of the Holy Spirit. So when did the last days begin? According to the Bible, on the day of Pentecost and with the ministry of Jesus, his earthly ministry. So we've been living in an age now since that time, and what we're waiting for is the return of Jesus. So we're living in the last days as far as God is concerned. And time is of the essence because we only have a limited amount of time. We don't know how much longer it will go on. And God keeps us in suspense. He doesn't give us a date because human nature being as it is, we'd all slack off and say, well, Jesus isn't going to return to the, you know, until I'm dead and gone. So what's the use? No, he keeps us in suspense. He keeps us kind of guessing. We need to continue to act as a Christian and to carry out the work of God as if Jesus could return next week. Amen. So it's a great reversal, but it's also fulfilled prophecy. Now there's another prophecy that was fulfilled. I want to turn to John chapter 7, verse 37. Because here on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes... The gospel begins to be preached. But notice what Jesus predicted, John 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, this is during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So we had talked a few years ago in a sermon that I gave that on the last day of the feast there was a ceremony where the priest would go to this spring and gather up these buckets or vessels of water and then take them in a procession to the, to the uh, temple in Jerusalem and pour the water out on the base of the altar at the temple. So in the midst of this water ceremony Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus talked about this. Remember when he met the Samaritan woman at the well, and she was there getting buckets of water, and Jesus said, I can give you water that you can drink and never be thirsty again. And he wasn't talking about literal water. He was talking about spiritual water. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. Amen. So he said here, whoever believes in me, verse 38, as the scripture has said, streams of living water. And what is living water? Well, living water is moving water. For example, if you have a pond, that water is still. It's not going anywhere. It's in the pond. But if you have a creek, that's moving water. That's a living water. It's active. It's dynamic. It's moving things along. It's carrying stones along. Maybe there's living creatures in it. And this living waters are producing great things. And that's why Jesus compares the Holy Spirit to not just a pond, <laughs> but living waters, moving waters, a rushing river that is creating. It's dynamic. It's moving. That's the way the Holy Spirit is. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. 
By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive on the day of Pentecost. It says, up until that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So another prophecy is fulfilled. All that Jesus said about water that's going to come out of us. And the Spirit that we have works out of us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and does his work through us. We have gifts of the Spirit that we use, that the Holy Spirit uses and accomplishes things through us. You know, the greatest gift is love. Whenever we love somebody or show compassion to somebody or show concern or kindness, that's the Holy Spirit flowing out of us. That dynamic living water coming out of us and blessing other people. So in whatever gift we have, whether it's serving in the church, that's the Holy Spirit coming out of us. If God has given you a musical talent or a teaching talent or this talent or that talent, we have so many of our wonderful ladies with the talent of uh, hospitality, serving food to others. All of these are gifts of the Spirit, and this is the water now flowing out of us. And that's going to continue for all eternity. The Holy Spirit is going to be in us for all eternity. And it stands for everything the Spirit does in the life of a believer, including ultimately eternal life through the Holy Spirit. So Pentecost shows us the great reversal from the time of Babel to the time of Pentecost. It shows us fulfilled prophecy, the prophecy of Joel, the prophecy of Jesus Christ. And thirdly and finally, Pentecost demonstrates promises kept. Promises kept. You know, the disciples would have remembered Jesus last night with them in the upper room at the Last Supper when he promised to send them the Holy Spirit. I want to turn to John 14. John 14, beginning in verse 60. John 14, 16. We'll begin in verse 15. He says to the disciples, If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. So Jesus had told them that he is going to be leaving. Of course, he was going to die on the cross first, be buried, be resurrected, and then several days after that, he'll be ascended back up to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. So I'm sure that they were wondering, well, you know, we've been following him for three years now, maybe three and a half years. Who's going to be our teacher? Somebody going to take his place? And he's explaining to them and encouraging them by saying, yes, God is going to send another teacher to you. But it's not going to be a person like me. Now, Jesus was fully God and fully man, but he walked as a human being. He was physical. He spoke to them. He interacted with them, but this new teacher, this counselor, is going to be the Holy Spirit. And he's going to work with them in a different way, in the way that he works with us today. You know, we don't have Jesus, and we don't have the Holy Spirit as a physical person sitting in a chair in this room today. We have the Holy Spirit 
who is actually in each and every one of us. And he's teaching us from within. He's counseling us from within. He's leading us from within. It's not like we're walking in the path of another person like the disciples did. The Holy Spirit has a different approach. In some ways, a, a grander approach. You know, you can't beat Jesus being with you. But Jesus could only be with the physical disciples that he was physically with because he was limited as being in a human body. Now the Holy Spirit transgresses the world. He's in Christians all around the world at the same time. Jesus could only be with the people he was in the room with at the time. So he was limited in that respect, but that was part of God's plan. Now that Jesus has departed to be back in heaven, we have the spirit of truth. He goes on to say here in verse 17, The world cannot accept him, the spirit, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And that was to take place on Pentecost. That's when the promise was fulfilled. I don't know about you, but the Holy Spirit is always a little bit more difficult to explain. You know, I'm so thankful that the Son of God, the Word, came down to this earth to become one of us. We can really relate to Jesus, can't we? Because he was here as one of us. He walked and talked. He got hungry. He got tired. He ate meals. We can really relate to that. And you know, God the Father, we can relate to him, I think, because we've all had a father. Many of us have been fathers. So we know a lot about what to expect of a father and what a father is like and, and how a father loves you and kind of sacrifices for you and does all those things that a father does. But the Holy Spirit's kind of the wild card of the bunch. I don't mean to, to, to say that uh, in the wrong way. We know we worship one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we catch a glimpse of the Holy Spirit when Jesus was baptized. It says he, he descended from heaven like a dove. What does that mean? What does that look like? And then this, this story of the, the day of Pentecost, rushing wind, tongues of fire over everybody's head, symbolizing power and strength. That's a little different. I don't know if we can relate to that fully. I think we can somewhat, but the Holy Spirit is always different. He always works behind the scenes. He's here inspiring each of us right now. He's here leading and guiding the service. He's with us every day of our lives. He dwells in us. So a little bit more difficult or more challenging to understand fully, but that's the Holy Spirit. Let's turn to chapter 15 of John. Verse 26, because Jesus goes on to say a little bit more about what this Holy Spirit will do. John 15, verse 26, When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify, Jesus says, about me. So the Holy Spirit's main purpose is not to testify about himself, the Holy Spirit. He points us to Jesus. He puts the spotlight on Jesus for us. Verse 27, And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. 
So it must have been a tremendous relief to the disciples to experience the arrival of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost in such a powerful way. Because I, God, I think God did it that way to catch their attention and to catch everybody's attention in, in the city of Jerusalem that this is something big happening. Really big. The Holy Spirit is our teacher, as the scripture just said, who guides us into all truth, who points us to Jesus and reminds us that he, Jesus, is the one we are to preach. He is the one that we are to teach about, and he is the one that we are to follow. And as the story of Pentecost back here in Acts 2 goes on, we see that the Holy Spirit did not waste any time. As soon as he arrived, as soon as those tongues of fire, the wind demonstrating the great miracle that was happening and the arrival of the Holy Spirit, immediately Peter takes the lead, verse 14 of Acts 2. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. But then he goes on in verse 22 to say, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's said purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And he goes on to say, Finally, in verse 31, seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Let me uh, scoot down just a couple of verses. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So what does Peter do? The Holy Spirit, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was going to help you point people to Jesus. And that's exactly what Peter's doing. He's not preaching about himself. He's not telling the story of the apostles and what they all have been through. He's not preaching that much about the Holy Spirit. He's pointing everybody to Jesus. He says finally in verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. So that sermon was directly inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit did exactly what Jesus said he was going to do, point people to Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit is also working in the ears and in the hearts of all the people who hear this message. So it says in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were heart-stricken. They had a broken heart about what happened to this man, and, and they feel sorrow for what they as a people did by putting him to death. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Based on all you preached, based on all that happened, we're ready to hear God's word for us. What shall we do? Peter replied, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, not in the name of the Holy Spirit, 
but in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will see, will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So Peter responded right away and did exactly what Jesus said the Spirit would lead us to do, testify about him. And the results were astounding. Now, Peter tells them to repent. The Greek word is metanao, which means a change of mind. It's translated here as repent, but the word in Greek literally means a change of mind, a change of thought, or thinking so powerful. So this change of mind, change of thought, change of thinking is so powerful that it changes one's very way of life. So in other words, it means to change the way you think about God. Amen. He is not against us. He is for us. He, is, he isn't just for a select few. He is for all humanity. The Father is not mad at us. He sent his Son to save us. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. Amen. So this word, repentance, means not just feeling sorrow, sorrow for your sins. That's part of it. But it means, it implies turning your attention to God in a way that you never have before. So that's what it means to repent. You know, you've lived a life basically of yourself, pleasing yourself. And now the gospel comes to you and you realize that you are a sinner in need of a savior. And God has provided exactly that for you. And all you have to do now is humble yourself, realize that you're a sinner, admit it, and realize that you need a Savior. And there is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Amen. who welcomes you, <laughs> welcomes you. So when you change the way you see God, it is then that you can receive the forgiveness that he offers you through Jesus Christ. As we said, so many people in the world feel they're good people. They don't need a savior. They're okay. Compared to a lot of other people, they're pretty good in their own eyes. Well, we have to come to the point to realize that there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, including you and me. Amen. So it is then that you can see that all the prophecies were about Jesus. He came to fulfill them for us. It is then that you can see that the Old Testament wasn't about Israel's failure. It was about God's faithfulness to his beloved. It is then you begin to feel more like someone God cares about, pays attention to, loves. You begin to feel like a child of God, and that's what we are. Peter calls us to repent, to change the way we view God, which will lead to change in the way we respond to God. And I want to turn finally to 1 John chapter 3. And to realize that because of Jesus Christ, and because of the Holy Spirit, and because of God the Father, that we are now children of God. It's not something that we're going to be in the future, but it's something that we are now. And I like the way John says it in 1 John 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. And how he, has he done that? by sending his son to be our savior, by sending the Holy Spirit. 
How great is the love of the Father that he has lavished on us that we should be now called children of God. And that is what we are. That is not what we might be. And if we do all the right things we could be in the future, it's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, God. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. And what we will be at Jesus' second coming has not yet been made known, but we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So what is our responsibility? Verse 3, everyone who has this hope, which we do, who has this hope in him, in Jesus, purifies himself just as he is pure. So we do our best to live the best Christian life we can, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We don't just kind of slack off and now wait for Jesus to return. No, we try to live the way he wants us to live. We obey his commands. We try to follow his example to the best of our ability. But we're not saving ourselves by these things. We're responding to being saved by grace, by his grace as a gift. So the Holy Spirit is a wonderful being. <laughs> as God the Father is, as the, as the Son Jesus Christ is, and the Holy Spirit is just as necessary in each of our lives as the Father and Jesus. And we see that he is a humble uh, person in the Godhead. He does not draw attention to himself. He points us to Jesus Christ. He puts the spotlight on Jesus Christ. And that's why as we worship, usually on a week-to-week -week basis, our focus is Jesus, our Savior. But when we worship Jesus, we're also worshiping God the Father and the Holy Spirit as well. But what a great gift God has given us. Not only was Pentecost the beginning of the, the New Testament church, it was the great reversal where God reversed what happened at Babel so many millennia ago. It was also fulfilled prophecy, not only Joel's prophecy, but the prophecy of Jesus about water flowing out of us, which is the Holy Spirit. And it's also a day of promises kept. Everything that Jesus promised about the Holy Spirit, not only his arrival, but what he would accomplish and continues to accomplish to this day, and even into the future will continue to accomplish, it's all been fulfilled. So we thank God for the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. And we haven't even scratched the surface on the work that the Holy Spirit does in each of us and in the church. So let's give God thanks and appreciation as we consider this on, on this day of Pentecost.